Well, friends, let's turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. And in order to plant this church, we're going to all need to be healed of something. It's called chronic confliction. Chronic confliction. So today's message from James 4, 1 to 10 is entitled, Hope for the Chronically Conflicted. Hope for the Chronically Conflicted. James 4, 1 begins, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But, verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Last week, Al and Tipper Gore announced their separation after 40 years of marriage. The Gores made the announcement in an email sent to friends and associates and released also to the press. Al Gore, not known for public displays of emotion, famously kissed his wife in an amorous embrace as he accepted the 2000 Democratic nomination for president. But here it was, the separation announced in the cold, digital form of an email. Jeffrey Zaslow of the Wall Street Journal wrote the following, The Gores aren't offering explanations, but marital therapists and divorce attorneys say the breakup of long-term marriages is routine these days for reasons of, catch this, cravings for happiness and self-expression. People are less willing to spend their last decades with someone who leaves them unfulfilled. Older couples are breaking up because of the desire of spouses to find happiness and self-expression. Perhaps the marriage of Al and Tipper Gore may yet be saved, we must prayerfully hope that it might be so. But their announcement sadly illustrates the wisdom of James 4, 1 to 10, that the cause of conflicts is the pursuit of personal agendas, self-expression, and even happiness above God. Or, as James 4 One says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, the main point of this message is this. 
that our quarrels and our fights reveal our passions at war in us. That's what verse 1 says. Your passions are at war within yourself. And these passions, they create conflicts with one another. That's what it says in verse 2. You desire, you don't have, so you murder. That's a conflict. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And these conflicts reveal what? They reveal an even deeper conflict with God. That's what it says in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this morning's message, God, God is here to say, I will resolve this conflict you have with me so that you might resolve the conflicts you have with one another. And that is the main point of the message there in your notes. Resolve your conflict with God to resolve your conflicts with others. Resolve your conflict with God to resolve your conflicts with others. Friends, sadly, quarreling and fighting is a regular occurrence for all of us. Therefore, God, through James, in his very in-your-face epistle, says to us, those conflicts reveal your conflict with God. And there is a solution. There is a solution. There is a solution. See, the, the first century church that James was speaking to was very conflicted. They were chronically conflicted like we are. In chapter 2, we found out that the rich and the poor were fighting with each other. In chapter 3, at the first part of the chapter, we find out that they were using their mouth to bless God and curse one another. In the second part of chapter 3, we encounter these teachers who are filled with rivalry and selfish ambition and bitter envy. And now, in chapter 4, we encounter violence, murder. As a matter of fact, some theologians say that there was actually physical violence going on in the church because of conflicts. Now, I realize here in Miami, you could never imagine that happening. But fistfights were breaking out in church. And to this chronically conflicted church, and actually to these chronically conflicted believers today, us, God writes, and he says this, resolve your conflict with me. First point. Resolve your conflict with God. And in order to resolve your conflict with God, we must identify the source of our conflict. Identify the source of your conflict with God. So James asks us, chronically conflicted believers, a very discerning question. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights? And what causes fights among you? And then he answers it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The answer that James provides, the answer that God provides for our conflicts is that we quarrel and fight Because we have passions that are at war within us. Now this word passions, it's a very important word. In the Greek, that word is hedone. Hedone. We get our English word hedonism from hedone. So these passions that are at war in us are pleasures. Are things that we really, really want. As a matter of fact, Jesus uses that same Greek word, hedone, in Luke 8.14. You can just jot that down, Luke 8.14. And Jesus uses it in the following. He says this, Luke 8.14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked 
by the cares and riches and hedone, pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Jesus uses this word to describe the things that choke out the fruitfulness of the life of God, the word of God in our, our, our Christian lives. Paul, Paul uses this word hedone in Titus 3.3. Titus 3.3. And this is how he uses it. Titus 3.3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various hedone, passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Notice what hedone produces in Titus. Malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Doesn't that describe our culture today? Give me what I want now, and if you don't, I'm going to hate you. And even if you do, I'm going to probably end up hating you. So we're fighting for what we want, these hedonies, these passions. See, these passions, according to Scripture, they war, but the war is primarily against God. Against God. You see, it's, it's our desires doing battle with God. The battlefield is our heart, and the fellow combatants are the people that are in our lives. So there you have it. Does that not describe us? Our fight with God played out in our fight or conflicts with others. As verse 2 says, we're willing to kill. We're willing to kill with our words, to kill with our attitudes. When we don't get what we want. Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So as we begin this message, oh dear friends, as we begin this message, take up mental note of your most recent conflict quarrel, and fight. Maybe for some of you it's the cold warfare and silent bitterness between husband and wife that leaks out or at times gushes out in sarcasm and biting criticism. Maybe your conflict, maybe your quarrel, would be between parents and children that is characterized by a lack of sharing, a lack of joy in being together, impatience, anger. Maybe it's just with a roommate. Maybe it's with the guy at the gas station today that was just not giving you what you wanted which is to get in and out quickly. He took too long. What are these conflicts? God is saying this. These conflicts point to your conflict with me, point to these passions. You see, these passions, these cravings that are described in verse 1, these hedonies, they can be a lot of things. Now, I'm sure you're thinking already what some of them are. Okay, these are the evil desires that people indulge in. And it can be that. Immoral things. Abusing drugs, materialism, greed, sure. And Lord knows we have those in abundance here and in the culture that surrounds us. But you know what? Yes, worldly pleasures can be these hedonies, but you know what else can become a hedonay? What can become a passion that wars against God? Check this out. Happiness, fulfillment, acceptance, care, and popularity from your friends. Romantic relationship with the opposite sex. Or, ladies, married ladies, sacrificial love and leadership from your husband. Men, respect from your wife. Parents, obedience from your children. Children, kindness, and that your parents would not provoke you. You see, all of these, the whole panorama can become passions that war within us when we elevate these things above God. It's not the thing in and of itself that makes it a, an evil passion. It's my love of that thing above my love of God. Al, 
How do I know when my desire for respect from my wife becomes a head and a? Here's how you know. Is there conflict associated with it? Are you willing to go to war to get it? Do you practice cold warfare? Or perhaps you employ the nuclear option to get it. That's how I can tell you if that good desire has become actually an adulterous passion. If there's conflict surrounding it. See, that's what God teaches us here. These legitimate desires, desires for things that God would place in our heart, if we elevate them above God, if we say, you know what, God, I want to seek you, not for you, but for that, what you have in your pocket there. A peaceful life, God. I'd like to go to heaven, God. You know, I don't care if you're there or not. Just take me to heaven. I've never liked really hot weather. So I I just want what you have. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Man, verse 3 is a great verse. What does he say to these folks? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's that word again. So see, what they're doing is they're saying, you know, God, I want what you have. I don't really want you. And I want what you have to spend it on my false lovers that I'm going after. Whoa. Where do you get that, Al? Verse 4. Look what verse 4 says. Look what verse 4. Look how verse 4 calls you and me. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Yeah, James. I, I don't know about you, man, but I'm, I'm getting a little gun shy with James. I mean, he, he's been in my face for about two and a half chapters now. He's telling me to tame my tongue. He's calling me out on my selfish ambition. Thank God that he's in my face. Because he takes a self-righteous man who can take a good thing, a godly thing, and turn it into an idol when I elevate that thing above God. And the way I know I'm doing it, because I'm willing to fight for it. Or I'm going to accuse God when I don't get it. I'm conflicted chronically. Where are you conflicted chronically, dear friend? Oh, if you get nothing else from this message, get this. Get this. A very basic application of this passage is that every time you find yourself quarreling and fighting, whether within yourself, just impatience, smoke coming out your ears, tapping on the steering wheel, whatever it might be, no one maybe would know about it but you, or when you find yourself in out-and-out, hand-to-hand combat, the blood is flowing, metaphorically speaking. Ask yourself this. This is what I ask myself. Al, What do you want here that you're not getting? What do you want here that you're not getting? Because that's become for you a head or nay. Whether it's a biblical thing that you think you have the right to ask God for, or it's a pleasure that's killing you, an illicit pleasure. That's that's what what verses 4 and 5 really, really hone in on. They hone on in this idea of adultery. God calls us an adulterous people who befriend the world and make ourselves his enemies. Look at verse 5. Incredible here. Don't you know? Excuse me, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what happens here is we who are his friends, we who whom God has loved when we were his enemies and now turned us into his friends, we choose to, to switch sides. We say, I'm going to love this thing more than you. And in that thing, 
I become a redeemed enemy of God. What's amazing is that he puts, he not only puts up with this, but we're going to see in a moment in verse six, he offers me a way out. When I slap his face, when I pull a gun on him, he, he bids me to come into his home. And at midnight, I'm robbing him at a gunpoint. Now, what's funny is he's God. So bullets do not harm God. But I think they do. So I treat him as an enemy. That's how serious this is. That's why James calls us adulterous people. Friends, we should not provoke God to jealousy. That's what verse 5 teaches us. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell on us? Difficult passage in the Greek. I think the NIV captures this a little better. The spirit that dwell, he dwell, caused to dwell on us envies intensely. This is that word envy we studied last week. It's a, good, it's a good envy in this one. This is the kind of jealousy that God has over his people. Exodus 20, when he's given the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, he says, do not, do not disobey this because I'm a jealous God. And I'm going to visit your kids and your kids' kids. But it's a good jealousy. You see, the Holy Spirit here, the Holy Spirit here is jealous that we love the one whom we should love. The one that we are married to. Because that's another metaphor. We're called the bride of Christ. The Holy Spirit's just being, he's being holy. He's saying, hey, it's wrong for you to give your love to someone that's not your spouse. Give your love to the one who saved you and loved you when you were naked and shameful and his enemy. Give your love to the one who died on a cross for you. That's what's going on here. See, see, we are brides of Christ, and the Holy Spirit does not want us to go somewhere else to, quote, have our needs met, unquote. And I know that's graphic, but did you know there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to this metaphor of physical adultery revealing our spiritual adultery? Go read it. It's the book of Hosea. It's an amazing book. God calls a righteous prophet... Hosea, to marry a prostitute. And he says, I want you to do that to show my people that they are prostituting themselves by going after other gods, other hedonais. And that's what James is calling into play here. Remember, James is Jewish. Remember, the primary first century audience is Jewish. They understand what he's saying. When he says adulterous people, you know what's flipping in their minds? Hosea, the prostitute that he married. What's flipping into his mind is all the Old Testament passages about spiritual adultery. We're those people, friends. We're those people. Our conflicts reveal our unfaithfulness to God. That's what they reveal. And he loves us so much that as we read in verse 3, when we ask him for the things we want to spend on our illicit lover, our true husband says, no. Because you're going to destroy yourself. No. Because it's not right. I won't give it to you. So you know, one thing to ask yourself, where am I warring for something and it seems like God is opposing me? Where am I warring for something and it seems like God is opposing me? It's in that place where our inner life has become a self-righteous, critical, bitter battleground against God and against others this bitterness against God is expressed in my conflict against others. What a discerning book. What a good God. 
He's saying the enemy within you who takes the peace, the true peace I give, needs to be exposed and needs to be dealt with. So friend, what are your passions that war within you? What are these head and A's in your life? What? What was your last conflict? With whom? What did you want that you didn't get? What is your chronic conflict? Hey, Doc, I've got this chronic pain in my back. Doc, I've got this chronic pain in my right knee. Okay, let's take an x-ray. Take a spiritual x-ray this morning. Write this down. Because here's the hope. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. When we've identified the source of our conflict, we then need to identify the grace to resolve your conflict. Identify the grace to resolve your conflict. But he, he, he gives more grace. The one whose face we slapped. The one on whom we pulled the gun. The one whom we try to stab in the back. Says, you know what? I'm going to give you more grace. I'm going to give you more grace. I'm going to give you more grace. Remember we said that James was like a New Testament Proverbs? Well, James here is quoting Proverbs. You can jot this down. Proverbs 3.34. Proverbs 3.34 is being quoted here in verse 6. It says in Proverbs 3.34, Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. Oh, friends, God says here in verse 6 that he will give grace to the humble but oppose the proud. Friends, we have a decision to make. Will we remain proud? And go after these hedonies and passions and demand our rights? Or will we humble ourselves and make peace with God? Where you are proud, where you choose to serve your passions, God will oppose you. And can I gently appeal to you? You do not want God as an opponent. You're not going to win. And you're going to make everyone around you miserable. See, God and his kindness will oppose you in that conflict, in that area where you proudly insist on your way. In fact, persistent conflict is a barometer of your pride against God. Those areas where you just don't get what you want and constantly find yourself at war with others or in your heart silently are those areas where you are being proud and God is lovingly opposing you because you are loving these things more than God. You've got your illicit lovers. He knows about them, but he wants to deal with them, get rid of them so that you would be fully his. And he's, and he's patient with us. Now, I, I'm going to tread very lightly here, but Think about that in the natural. When a spouse, when a man, takes back a wife, like Hosea did his wife. What humility. Can you imagine God's humility? He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done A gazillion times more than we are. In fact, he's saying, be like me. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. If we will humble ourselves, we will receive grace to repent of our adultery. What is this grace? What is this grace? Well, in your notes, you have a lengthy quote from Kent Hughes. Let me read to you what this grace is. This is the grace of verse 6. This is not saving grace. 
but it's God's gracious supply to live as we ought in a fallen world. Whatever our condition or situation, he always gives us more grace. He gives grace to overcome personal weaknesses. If you are repeatedly succumbing to a burning pursuit of hedonism, pleasure-seeking that makes you a temporary enemy of God, if you are a victim of imploding self-centeredness, which repeatedly sucks you into its nothingness, if you are so stubborn that you have never lost an argument, you never listen to anyone, and you find that your most intimate relationships are impaired so that your spouse and friends find your presence a burden. But you want to change? God will give you more grace. But there's a condition. There's a condition. Go back to verse 6. We're going to read verses 6 to 9. Here's the condition. For the grace, we're identifying the grace. We identified the source of our conflict. It's these passions, these head and A's that become idols. We love them more than God. We're committing spiritual adultery with them against our, our husband, which is a biblical metaphor. The church is the bride of Christ. Now here is the grace. Let's identify the grace. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a picture of a repentant man or woman. Not someone up there in someone else's face demanding their rights and using the Bible to get it. This is a broken man or woman that says it doesn't matter. It ceased being about who's right or what my rights are. This is about God and the spiritual adultery that I'm committing against him. This is, this is hitting the deck and weeping before God. I'm affected by this in my own life because I am that last person that I just read about. The one who's stubborn and never loses an argument. My offense is against a holy God. Grace finds the lowest place. I was just recently reviewing my insurance, my many insurance and expensive insurance policies for my house. I just stumbled upon flood insurance. I don't know. I, I think the number is around $400 a year. And I remember thinking when I lived in Georgia, the, the insurance for my entire house in Georgia was $250 a year. And so, you know, I wasn't complaining much, um, but I did repent. <laughs> but I was thinking, why do I have to have flood insurance? Well, because I live in what used to be the Everglades. And this wonderful truth about humility hit me. Water finds the lowest place. So the people that lent me the money for my house said, hey, Pino, water will find the lowest place. So if it rains really hard or if some hurricane comes and sits right over your land for about a couple of days, your house is going to get flooded. So give us 400 bucks, we'll insure your contents for X amount of dollars. When it rains, water finds the lowest place in my backyard. Nice little puddle, I can tell you exactly where it is. You know, when it rains in my community, water finds the lowest place in these retention ponds that they have strewn all over my neighborhood. In our state, water finds the lowest place. It's called Lake Okeechobee. It defines our state. And on this earth, water finds the lowest place in these oceans, these massive oceans that are filled with water. And so in your life, friend, water will find the lowest place. Don't we need grace? 
Listen, I need, I, need a, I need a pond. I need a little puddle of grace. I need ponds of grace. I need a lake of Okeechobee of grace. Man, I need an ocean of grace. Then I need to get low. Because grace will not find me if I'm in a high place. It will find me when I'm in a low place. That's what this scripture says. Oh, friends, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, the word for you is get low. Admit you don't know. Admit that you are lost and you are a recipient of God's wrath and get low. It's called repentance. That's what Jesus said. Repent and believe. May God give you that grace to repent. I pray. And you'll be blessed. And if you're a believer, and this is for most of us here, oh, believer, get low. Remember that place you wrote, that last conflict? Remember that, that passion, that head of day? Ask God for the grace to get low there. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, point two, resolve your conflicts with others. What does it look like to get low? What does it look like to get into a place where you can be a recipient of God's grace? Number one, it means submitting yourself to God, resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. Look, verse 7. Verse 7 says the following. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What does that mean? Well, this is what I believe it's saying here. I don't think it's saying you can blame the devil for all of your conflicts. Tempting though that is to say, I don't think that's what it's saying. What I think it's saying is the devil representing all that opposes God. He's the chief opposer of God. But scripture teaches us that we have three enemies, do we not? Yes, we do. It teaches us that we have, of course, the devil as an enemy. We have this world system as an enemy. But the enemy within, the one that we're probably dealing with right now mostly, is the flesh. It's these passions. Haven't you asked yourself, how can a Christian who's redeemed and become a friend of God become a temporary enemy of God? It's called the flesh. I'm acting like his enemy. And so I believe what it's saying here is submit to God. Listen to this message. Apply this message. Humble yourself. Resist the devil. And for each one of us, it's going to be a fight. But God will give us the victory. Isn't that what it says in verse 7? He will flee from you. You'll overcome your flesh. The world won't be as sweet as it once was to you. Second, oh, by the way, how do we do that? How do we submit ourselves to God? Can I just suggest this? Start by praying. Start by praying. And start by praying how Jesus prayed. Remember in the garden? He didn't want to die. He didn't didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to be separated from the Father. And yet, what did he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. And see, he was living out the very prayer that he taught us to pray back in Matthew. Because in Matthew, when his disciples said, teach us to pray, Lord, he said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So start submitting yourself to God by adjusting your prayers. Because we found out in verse 3, a selfish prayer that says, God, give me what I want. I don't necessarily want you or your will. Give me what I want. Oh, and here's the text that says that I can have it. That prayer will not be answered. But the prayer that says, oh God, I submit to you. I submit this situation, this person. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not even getting what I think scripture says. But oh Lord, thy will be done. Let me represent you to this person. I believe that's a beginning of submitting yourself to God. Next, draw near to God. Draw near to God. How do you resolve conflicts with others? Draw near to God. And what does the word say here? 
He will draw near to you. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Seek God. Seek God daily. Seek God daily simply for God. Uh, We've been going through a study with the home group leaders from a book called The Prodigal God. Excellent book. Tim Keller is the author. believe we have some copies out there. And he basically talks about this. Both brothers, the self-righteous one and the one that lived for the world, were, 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 were not seeking God, were not seeking the Father for the Father. They were seeking the Father for what they could get from the Father, for his riches, for the inheritance. And so we can do that. We can seek God, not for God, but for what he can give us. So, so seek him for who he is. Draw near to God in Bible reading. Draw near to God in worship. Draw near to God on Sunday mornings. Thank you for coming this morning. This is great. You're drawing near to God corporately. Draw near to God Wednesday nights when you go to home group corporately. Draw near to God when you have coffee with someone and crack open the Bible and read what it says and say, hey, come on, what does this mean to you? What does it mean for me? How can we apply it? Draw near to God. And finally, repent of the idolatrous passions of your heart. Look at verses 8b and 9. 8b and 9. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a picture of godly sorrow for sin. It's not regret. It's not self-centered. It's not introspective. It is God showing us where we have loved other gods, other lovers, and repenting of that and running to him. But it is repentance. It is repentance. Oh, friend, find your pleasure in God alone, not in these false things. For God alone can delight you, and God alone can give the desires of your heart. Psalm 37.4, Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. You know what I think that means? As you delight in this, your desires begin to change. He gives you the desires of your heart, and then He gives you the desires of your heart. So He changes what you would, would normally desire apart from Him, and then He gives you the very things you desire to be more like Jesus, to know God more. Psalm 16.11 Psalm 16.11 tells us that all true pleasures are authored by God. Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Nowhere else will you find pleasures forevermore than at the right hand of God. Every pleasure that's apart from God will end one day. And let me tell you, it's going to end badly. Either on this earth, or if you get away with it on this earth, it will end very badly when you stand before God. It will end eternally badly. I pray it end badly for you now. That's God's kindness. Rather than wait till that day. God made us for pleasure. His pleasure. So we can seek pleasure in God. And that's the only pleasure that fulfills. Oh, this is a great passage. Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13. God speaking to his people in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns. Those are big containers for themselves. But the problem is, they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. What good's a cistern if it doesn't hold water? What good is a pleasure if it's not eternally enjoyed? It's false. It will defraud you. God's desire to be glorified and your desire to be satisfied are not irreconcilable. Pursue Him with all you have for every genuine pleasure is from His 
hand. And you know what the promise is? Look at verse 10. Here's the promise. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what? He will exalt you. You won't exalt yourself. He will exalt you. He will give you a joy that no one can take. He will exalt you ultimately in his presence for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name for every heart that is crying out to you. Every person that is saying, oh God, I see my idol. I see the passion that has become for me a head and a, a pleasure that is adulterous in nature, that dishonors you, that makes me a temporary redeemed enemy of God. And Lord, I pray that you would give these hearts that are right now repenting, that are sorrowing grace, grace, more grace, that the focus wouldn't be the sin, the focus wouldn't be the conflict, the focus wouldn't be any of that, but the focus would be you, Lord, that they would fall in love with you, Lord, that they would receive your outstretched hand, your offer of more grace. Grace for the person in this room right now who is addicted to a substance and cannot get off of it. Grace for the person in this room right now who's addicted to, to illicit images, pornographic images, and all that goes with that. The person maybe right now in this room that is in the midst of an adulterous affair, literally, or considering it, even now, give them grace, God. Arrest them, God. Stop them, Lord. That these cisterns, these jars that are broken, that cannot hold water, that we think are so beautiful, oh, let us throw them away. And let us receive the vessels you give us to hold the water that will never dry up, that will fill our souls with goodness. I just want to pause. I realize this is a heavy message. But, oh, friend, the glory of God is heavier and the grace of God is more profound than any sin you can think of doing, have done, or will do. God just says, get low. Get low. Agree with him. Humble yourself. And he will exalt you. Oh, Father. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever here. That you would today save them. They would get low like they've never gotten low before. They would repent of their arrogance against you and their autonomy. Save them. And Lord, we will draw near to you as a church to receive your grace. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and let's draw near to the Lord as we sing this song together.